for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. In truth, uh, Martin Luther is born in 1483 in Germany, and I've just got the map there, so you can see where in Germany roughly, in comparison to Ashford and London. Um, and that's his parents, so you can see where he got his looks from. And um, so he went to school in that area. And then um, his dad uh, was, uh, he came from a very poor background and was really hardworking. So he bought himself a copper mine and he basically like worked his socks off. He just worked really, really hard and gradually built up a business. And I think it, it struggled loads of times. And, and through that, eventually he got quite rich. And, and he, because he grew up in poverty, he really didn't want his son to go through the same, same problems. So he encouraged him to study law and become a lawyer because that was a um, well-regarded profession and it was making good money and um, it just was a, a prudent decision and encouraging his son to, to become somebody who can rely on him, like on his income. Um, and actually, uh, that is providence of God because through becoming a lawyer, uh, he learned about law and about oratory, about how to make a good reasoned argument, which was really, really needed later on in life to make his case for salvation by grace and if he wouldn't have had that training, I think he would have really struggled. And I don't think he would have come very far. So, um, so he did his studies, and you can see the time on the left. So just normal life, nothing special. And then there was this big moment in life where um, he, he rode home one day, and he ended up in this massive um, uh, thunderstorm, and, um, and he nearly got struck by lightning. And, and he thought he would die at that moment. And, and he, there was lots of superstition around at that time as well. And he just says... Okay, um, he didn't even pray to God because at that time you just don't pray to God because God is too holy, too remote from, from where we are. So you pray through saints. So in this case, he actually prayed to St. Anne and, and promised, God, like, St. Anne, if you save me from this thunderstorm, I'll become a monk. And, and he survived it and decided to become a monk, which everybody thought was just ridiculous and crazy because obviously he was really like, successful somewhere. Um, but again, as I thought about it, like... Um, he understood law, so he studied um, the law and, and how to be a lawyer. And actually, in order to understand the gospel, you first have to understand the law. You first have to understand the Ten Commandments and the law that's put down in the Old Testament to see, okay, what is sin? Yes, we're sinners. What does this mean? And, and how does this transaction process work of, okay, we have uh, accumulated debt, but God pays this debt for us. So actually, it was, in a way, helpful. And and he just started studying more and more. Uh, I guess he started at the beginning of the Bible. You just read through it. And he just realized more and more, I'm a sinful person. I can never live up to the standard that God has placed on me. Um, so he just tried everything from praying to like, like hitting himself. That's, if you've seen the Da Vinci Code, the, the film uh, that's in there as well. So people still do that. They feel, feel like they have to do good works and punish themselves um, to, in a way, pay off debt, pay off sin. And even like when he did his first communion, when he became a priest, he was just so nervous um, about like doing communion because he felt really sinful that he he dropped the wine and the wafers, which was a big uh, sin in the Catholic Church. You shouldn't do that because it's it's the body of, and and blood of, of Christ. So um, so he really yeah, and he spent loads of time in um, confession. So actually, his priests got really annoyed with him because he spent so much time in confession. He got to the point where he was. Um, Talking about every like uh, his every fart, <laughs> like just in, in doing penance for that one, and just saying I'm sorry I did that, and that one. and he just really pushed us the limits. It was um, and he got quite depressed through that. 
And then gradually, as he started reading the Bible more and more, and as he just walked with open eyes through the world, he realized that actually some of these things didn't fit together. So he was given the opportunity to go to Rome and uh, to sort something out for the church there. And he thought, that's going to be amazing. I'm going to go to Rome. This is the center of the Catholic Church. This is where all the saints live. This is heaven on earth. This is the best place I possibly could go to. And um, so he just went full of excitement. Oh, I'm going to Rome. It's going to be the most amazing experience seeing the most holy people ever. And he just was really shocked what he saw. So he basically saw prostitutes on the streets um, and um, priests, really, really corrupt priests, when he did, did like, like masses over there, like hurrying him on, telling him to get on with it because... Um, like just get people more quicker through the mass because you get more money in. So he just saw it was like a big business, and he just he struggled with that, and he just it, it just tried to figure out. Okay, well, I, I tried to go up these steps like this. They were these famous steps which you have to go up on on your knees, and you have to pray like the Hail Mary, and and again do penance basically, and just do works. So you basically have to say specific prayers, and as you say specific prayers, you basically basically get some sins knocked off on your on your list. And he just felt like. It's, it, does that make sense? And, and he just struggled more and more with that. And he's, so, again, providence. He had experience that other people would not have had. You, at that point, again, you didn't have the internet. You didn't have any phones. You just couldn't see what else was out there. And people just didn't know what was happening in Rome in reality. And then, also, also he saw the indulgent sellers in Germany. And, um, again, in the timeline, you can see this, his life. Um, so, overall, it was more like um, he started high up was successful with rich parents, and then went further and further down in depression and struggling, and then gradually he just learned more and more and got more experience, and then eventually he just learned that actually you're saved by grace as he was reading the New Testament, and that's the really famous picture most people know, like not the picture, that one, but um, the thing that Martin Luther did. He basically, he wrote 95 theses, which was like 95 points, where he basically disagrees with the Pope and the Catholic Church and said, actually, I'm reading my Bible and all these things don't really match up. Um, so he just wrote them all down and it, it looks really revolutionary that actually he just nails them to the door. But actually, um, I read somewhere that this is not much different than like a Facebook wall. This was like a place where you just push something there so, so it would be there in the public so people can start discussing it. And he didn't try to be controversial. He actually posted them in Latin. So he tried to not to post them for the general public, but actually for uh, discussion with other academics, other priests. He just wanted to inspire some discussion about what he learned in his studies. And he didn't want to start a, a revolt or... Um, initially. Um, good. Okay, so that's the first thing we've learned uh, about salvation by grace. Um, again, there's something interesting I came across a few years ago where a lot of people still believe that, that Jesus plus good deeds means eternal life. But actually, that's a false gospel. So if, if you believe that, um, that's wrong. The, the true gospel is Jesus and nothing equals eternal life and good deeds. Good. Um, yeah, so that, that is, again, the timeline where we are. Um, so uh, when you see 1483, he uh, was born, and then around 1513, I think it was, uh, yeah, 1517, he did the 95 Thesis. Good, yeah, so he, he at that point, he didn't want to cause any, any like, um, upset with anybody, but actually um, what, he, what happened, people saw these theses, and thought they were brilliant, and then all these other scholars who could read them, they quickly translated them into German, sent them off to the printing press, and then tra- like just passed them around the people because they realized we're being ripped off here. We're actually losing all of our money that we have um, and uh, for, for a lie, basically. And um, Martin Luther didn't intend for that to happen, but actually he went 
viral by accident. Um, good. Okay. Now, I always try to finish one of these areas just with quick questions for us, to apply for us. Are there any non-biblical laws that we place on people or, or on ourselves? It's just for our self-evaluation as we think about what we've just learned or about Martin Luther's history. Is there anything that we're steeped in in religion? Because it's something it's quite easy to slide into, um, where we feel like Christians have to look in a certain way or do certain things. I always find it quite interesting that, like, I think over here, Christians in England, Christians can drink alcohol, but they can't smoke. Officially, like, what I've, not, not officially, but like when you speak to people, oh, he's a Christian and he smokes. Oh. Whereas if you go to America, in America, you see Christians smoking, but they don't drink alcohol. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting how we have this um, perception where we, certain Christians have to do certain things or don't do certain things. And, um, and we just yeah, have to be careful with that and constantly evaluate ourselves as a church as well. Like we say, okay, sometimes we... we um, say, oh, yeah, the Anglican strict churches, they have an order of service and they're so strict and they always adhere to the same structure. But actually, we have our own structure as well. We start with worship and then have the sermon afterwards. Um, choose, they start with the sermon first and then do worship after the sermon as a response to the sermon to praise God for it. So we have some sort of rules as well indirectly which are not sinful, but um, it's always interesting just to reevaluate ourselves. Where are we in religion somehow? Good. Okay, that's the second point. Now that was the biggest one initially, so don't worry about time. Um, the next big thing to learn from him, really, that I found really helpful was courage. So he he just had very little or no fear of man, which was quite a big deal at that time. Because um, yeah, at that point, after he went viral, uh, it like initially started with like different debates. So he started debating other scholars and just try to make his point and actually say, look, this is why I'm believing this. Um, and then eventually it got to the point where um, they had to call in something called a diet of worms, which sounds horrific <laughs> if you're English. Um, but actually, um, the diet of worms is... Uh, diet is a German word for convention, and worms is, is a city. Um, so I've got a map here. Um, yeah, it's, it's not a disgusting place. It's just a random place. And we have random German names. For example, you wouldn't want to have a girlfriend from that place in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. One of my uh, friends at university discovered that on the map and thought, oh, where is that? Yeah, good. Okay, so the diet of worms, which basically means um, loads of high-flying people, like, uh, including, I think, the King, King Charles, got together and said, okay, we've got a problem here because Martin Luther has gone viral and everybody's reading what he's written and um, we have to shut him down. Like, we have to shut him up and get rid of him because actually this is a problem. Um, the Catholic Church is on our back. The Pope is really unhappy. And if we don't keep the Pope happy, then he could go against us and actually shut us down as, as kings. And popes have been known to depossess kings. So actually the Pope had a lot of power at that time. So... Um, Interesting as well, when you, when you read the story of Martin Luther, they didn't give him any reasons. They didn't say, well, we don't disagree with you on this point uh, because of these Bible verses and these Bible verses. They were just saying, no, you're wrong because the Pope says so. And just not giving him yeah, any chance really to have an argument with it. Um, and eventually, um, well, going back to the fear of man thing, other people have tried it before, and there's a famous guy called Jan Hus, 100 years before that, um, he tried to start some sort of reform of the church because he read the Bible. Um, and um, William Tyndale, that um, Simon did a talk on, um, and, and loads of others, if you disagree with the church and if you disagree with the Pope, they might just kill you. And uh, there's been lots of evidence like, of that happening in the previous years. So Martin Luther knew, if I'm messing up, if, um, 
if I'm losing this case or if I'm not careful, I'll be on, I'll be burned in no time. And um, they basically just gave him that ultimatum and said, okay, we want you to recant and to say everything I've written is a load of rubbish uh, and step down. And they had to play it also carefully because um, the people in Germany, like the peasants in general, they really were on Martin Luther's side. So it was a, okay, we want to shut him down, but we have to do it really carefully because um, if we do it over the top straight away, then actually we might have a peasant revolt. So that actually made it more difficult for them. And then that is one of his most famous quotes where he says, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither people nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and I will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe or sound. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And um, it's pretty much a very bold statement to say that in front of like all the top people in the church in Germany and the, the king saying, okay, well, I want to, to some extent, recant because I, I don't want to be killed. But actually, it's in my conscience. I've read it. This is the truth. I need to stand to this. And, and he really expects to be killed. And um, they, had to make, make, they made him repeat the whole statement in Latin. And at that point, he nearly broke down out of exhaustion and being nervous and, and being like, scared of death, pretty much. It was like a Gethsemane experience for him, pretty much, of just, I'm being killed anyway, I mean, very brutally. Um, and because they, so yeah, so he had no, uh, yeah, it was very courageous in this case. And I wonder how many of us would have just said, okay, uh, it's one thing to believe something for myself, so I, I put my faith in God and, and get salvation for myself, but I'm not going to die for this for other people. And, but he really stood up for it, and um, yeah, so he was very courageous. And um, the other thing that came to mind was that, like, also earlier on, early in life, when he went to the monastery, he actually went against his dad, who invested loads of money in him to become a lawyer, and his dad was really unhappy with that. Um, but even, even with that, he actually stood his ground and said, well, I've made this promise to God now. I need to keep this. And actually, he always felt God first and then everybody else. And, um, yeah, like, again, an example, probably an application for us. I have a massive respect for Muslims who become Christians because they have to go against their families and actually they risk their lives and losing their family. And the stories I hear of, of when Muslims make that stand nowadays, that is the same as Martin Luther, really. It's very, very courageous and powerful. Good, yeah, so that's our question for us. Are we afraid of being offensive? Um, because the message of the cross is offensive. Now, um, as I thought more about it, um, I also felt like um, I hear a lot of people doing gospel presentations, not in this church, but, like, but like all around the world, and very, very often people just simplify the gospel. And they just say, oh yeah, God loves you, come to Jesus, everything, trust in Jesus, God loves you. But that's not really offensive, is it? So, and, um, so my question is, is that really the full gospel? Yes, it's true. God loves us massively, but is, is that really the full gospel? And, and are we just doing this a cheap cop-out? Because we don't want to be offensive, and we don't, want, we don't want people to be upset with us. Um, yeah. And uh, really, really quick aside, that's something I've, I use for kids' work. I find that really helpful in evangelism. There's two extremes. You've got the prodigal son in sin, and you've got um, the Pharisee, which is a sign like, for religion. And the more I speak with non-Christians about like, faith and gospel and everything, very often I just get told, I'm not sinful, I've done anything wrong, I'm just a good person. So really, 
um, in your head, you have to think, well, they're on the religion side. They're not on the sinful side. They're actually self-righteous, prideful of like, I'm really good. I haven't killed anybody. I'm, I'm not a bad person. And um, so when we present the gospel, we have to equally talk and preach against sin as we have to preach against a religion. And I guess that's, again, also the, the system of like, you've got the sinful peasant and you've got the religious church, which is both extremes, really. And, and the golden middle is Jesus. He wasn't sinful. He was free of sin, but he also he wasn't religious. And, and he went. He was preaching against sin, but he was also preaching against the Pharisees and how they, at that time, two thousand years ago, were yeah, getting lots of money from people. So, are we afraid what people think of us? Good. Okay. Point three. They, they speed up now. Um, so he was redeeming redeeming suffering. So at that time, so all hell broke, broke loose. They sent him off and said, "Okay, we'll, we'll give you four days to run off. From this point onwards, you're an outlaw." And people can kill you, and if people kill you, you're doing a service to the country because obviously Martin Luther is evil. And so he got four days, and on his journey back to his place, um, lots of nights at night were storming up, and, it, and Martin Luther thought, this is it now, I'm, I'm going to be killed now. But actually, it was his friends in disguise. So his friends were staging this um, kidnapping of, of Martin Luther and basically created that rumor around Germany that Martin Luther was killed. But actually, they just uh, hid him in, in that place, in that uh, castle called the Wartburg. So who says the Christian life needs to be boring? Kidnapping your friends. <laughs> and, and he was basically spending like, quite some time in that castle and was pretty much stuck there. And, and he got really depressed because he felt like, there's so much stuff I could do, but I'm stuck here like a prisoner because obviously I could walk out, but then I wouldn't be safe. And they didn't let him go because they were friends who said, like, no, we can't let you go because you would be killed. So he got really depressed. But actually, interestingly, is he redeemed that suffering. And in, in that time, he translated the Bible. So the sort of stuff you do when you feel sick and you're, like, stuck at home and can't go anywhere, you just start translating the Bible from Latin into German. Uh, and, um, yeah, so another quote, just if you think about if you're suffering, I quite like that one, Billy Graham, life is hard, but God is good and heaven is real. Um, so how, how are we suffering and um, how are we suffering right now? Is there anybody in this room who's struggling with something massively and feels like I'm waiting for a job but can't, I can't get a job or I'm sick at the moment, I'm, I can't go anywhere and, but I've got spare time. So how can I use this time to redeem that time of suffering? Another example is Paul. When Paul was in prison, um, he got really upset because he was going around all of like, places preaching the gospel and he they got stuck in prison in Rome and then he used that time to write the letters and if Paul wouldn't have been in prison at that time, and if, if he would have, wouldn't have redeemed his suffering, we wouldn't have, like, one-third of the New Testament, which is, like, massive, all these, all these letters. Good. Uh, next point, leaving a legacy. Um, so at that point, like, I mean, what you could learn from that, the written word is powerful. It was really helpful that Martin Luther wrote all these things down. If he wouldn't have written down his 95 Theses, they wouldn't have spread that much. Ideas are very dangerous, and also he was using the latest technologies. So he was using the printing press, which was just invented around that time as well, to make copies of all his writing and his tracts, and then just spread around. So, um, question for us is: Is there anything we should be writing down? I found it really helpful. Like my mum found a, a little booklet that some uh, somebody wrote in my family fifty years ago about my great great grandmother, um, and. I mean, my, my grandma, I said, she said, she's into ancestry, and I've got all these, like, ancestry tables. But actually, they're really boring to read, because all you have is names and dates and birthdays and death dates, and you just look at them, and they're funny names in there, but actually, it doesn't tell you anything, really. But having found that little booklet about my great-grandma's uh, life, 
it's fascinating just reading like these 2,000 words of like what she lived like, what she went through, and it just basically created this whole image of your of your um, relative who who was a Christian, and um, and I could just learn from that, and uh, just yeah. Do you need to write your life story down? Or, or maybe your parents or your grandparents' life story while they're still alive before that memory gets lost? Good, okay. Now, that, that is probably the most fascinating bit I, I learned uh, about Martin Luther was his marriage with, from, with Kat, Katarina from Bora. Um, and I've called the section Friendship and Marriage. So, um, yeah. Sorry, I skipped ahead a bit. So, another big thing that Martin Luther did is, um, at that point... Marriage was seen as only for, um, for people that are less spiritual. So if you can't control your urges, you get married. But if you're super holy, you become a priest and you stay celibate. And that's the best thing ever. And Martin Luther basically said, as he read the Bible, that's a load of rubbish. And he wrote a little tract called On Monastic Vows. And in this one, he just uh, he renounced his vows. He encouraged other people to renounce their vows. And um, he encouraged priests and nuns to leave the convent in the priesthood, which is very radical. And that little tract, because it got printed and got spread everywhere, found its way into a little convent with lots of young nuns who started reading them and thought, oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, we would like to get married and make babies and, and leave the convent. And they've devised this plan with Martin Luther to go into fish barrels. So again, crazy story, but true. Um, and they had 12 nuns put into fish barrels and then got smuggled out of the convent, which, again, at that point was illegal, and if you get caught doing that, you get killed. So they got smuggled out of the convent, and um, many of them then were like married, went back to the families or got married off, except for one exception, which is Katharina from Bora. Um, and Martin Luther tried to find wives for everybody, except for that lady. He just couldn't find a husband. Um, he, he managed to get her engaged with another man who pulled out very quickly because the reasons that were given in, in what I've read is she was apparently unattractive, unpleasant, stubborn, and prideful. So all the sort of qualities you would like in a perfect wife. Um, and um, she, yeah, she just couldn't marry her off. And then she was quite bold for that time as well. And she basically said, like, well, if you can't find a husband for me, you, marry, you have to marry me. And he was like, no, no, I definitely want to do that. Um, there's a quote from Martin Luther that says, um, good Lord, they will never thrust the wife on me. So he, he really expected to be killed any time because he thought, like, I'm, I'm an outlaw and I'm, I'm in danger. The, the last thing I should do is start, like, a family, have lots of children, have lots of, and then get killed, basically, in no time. But um, eventually he gave in because she was very forceful. And the, the reasons, again, it's really funny, like, the reasons that he gave uh, for getting married was to spite the devil. <laughs> so very romantic, I get married to spite the devil. And um, so then she gets pregnant as well uh, fairly soon after that. And again, it's interesting because the fol- folklore at that time was that the Antichrist would come from the union between a rebellious nun and a renegade monk. <laughs> so it was just like perfect storm. You've got these two renegades there and they're having a baby. Oh no, the Antichrist is coming. This is the end of the world. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so, so that's how their marriage started, very romantic, and they eventually had six children, three boys and three girls. Um, one of them, a 13-year-old daughter, tragically dies, and um, they were very socially awkward, as you can imagine, a, a nun who grows up in a convent from age six onwards, never seen a man in her life, and just spending all the time with other women, and again, there's stories of like her just sitting next to Martin Luther, just like not knowing what to say, and just coming out with random statements of like, who's the king of Prussia? And just like trying to make conversation, but not really knowing how to. So it just started off very socially awkward and tricky. But actually, 
um, she was a really good for him because um, Martin Luther, like his house, as you can imagine, was a complete bachelor's pad. Um, and it was like an old monastery and guys were coming in and out and uh, he would have like 100 people over for dinner one night because like the Re- Reformation was just exploding out of their home. And it was just chaos, really messy. He was sleeping on straw and hadn't changed it for years. Um, and she, just, she goes in there and just cleans out his life. He cleans out the house, tidies everything up, and she, yeah, she was very helpful for him. And she was also a bit of a naturopath, so she started growing vegetables. Um, Martin Luther, if you read stuff, he has had quite a famous flatulence problem. <laughs> Again, probably with bad nutrition and just eating like a bachelor. And, but then the amazing thing that I found really helpful from learning from that is that they've just built an amazing friendship over, over that time. And, um, and like... They spent lots of times together where, like, um, she just was right next to him. So, like, every time he was writing his letters, she was actually there next to him. So, if you, if you read Martin Luther's letters, um, there's often, like, oh, Katie, by the way, she says, she says hi. She's sitting right next to me, and she was encouraging him. Um, on occasion, there was actually a place, time where she saved his life, where she had a, a, a dream given from God saying, if you go to this place and preach, they will kill you. And then he listened to his wife and didn't go there, and then got a letter shortly afterwards saying, good thing you didn't come, people were waiting there to kill you. Um, so she was support for him in that sense as well. Um, and um, in his letters, there's loads of um, like names that he actually writes about her to just show his affection for her. Um, he, so he called her Lord Katie, dear Rip, the Empress, my true love, my sweetheart, gracious lady, wise woman, doctor, your grace, holy lady, dear wife, and a gift of God. So he's got lots of nicknames for her. And then also, he, she was very good encouragement when, she got, when he got quite depressed as well, because things didn't go that well. And then, again, it's a famous story where um, he just came home uh, one day, and then she was opening the door, and she was all dressed up in black. And, and then he said, like, well, who died? What happened? And then she just says, well, if the great Martin Luther is this depressed, I just assume that God has died. So she, she had a flair for the dramatic and the com- comedic. Uh, uh, yeah, she was funny. Um, good. So, again, so that's just thing, something for us, for us to learn as well, that actually uh, he's got a really good role model of, a, of, a, of um, a marriage. And for us to learn, or the question for us to ask is, like, if you're married, how good of a friend are you to your spouse? Because at that point, marriages were very functional, and it was pretty much like um, you just get married to have babies. And he was a really good friend. Good. Um, okay, time's over, so I'm going to quickly just show you these things. He was a worship leader, did loads of, wrote loads of songs, so he was pretty much one of the first worship leaders out there. Um, and in Catholic Church at that time, you didn't actually sing, you just had a choir which was singing, but the, like, the people in the church didn't sing, so he actually had to teach people how to sing and, and um, wrote lots of songs to make it easy to sing. So he was the first mega church worship leader. He was very hardworking while sick. While sick, okay? Um, he preached, um, oh, there you go. He preached 180 sermons, wrote 15 tracts, worked on the Old Testament translation, and took a number of trips. That was in six months, I think. Um, his family, they raised six children. Makes me think I'm complaining about one child. <laughs> I just raised Amy. So they had six children, 11 foster children, and took in 24 board, boarding students. And his wife ran the home like a general. She was a herbalist, cared for bees, pigs, horses, cows, fish pond, and he, she brewed Luther's favorite beer. <laughs> Women take note. <laughs> um, good. So how's my work moral? Am I a complainer? And, but also just to finish off, like he was also flawed and imperfect. So I guess a series like this, when we look at saints, or the saints of, like, of heroes of faith, um, we think, think they're amazing, but actually he was deeply flawed. And later on in life, uh, it just shows that um, 
he got really bitter, I guess. I guess the more he was like reading the Bible and felt like what the Catholic Church was doing at that time, um, he just wrote loads of like really harsh tracts and um, and got things wrong as well with his theology. Um, he wrote a really long treatise against the Jews. Um, so he's very anti-Semitic. So actually, really deeply flawed and imperfect. Um, yeah. So and yeah, there is a Luther insult generator online. So if you go to Google and type. Um, that's pretty interesting. Oh, is that um, okay? Yeah. So if, if you go to uh, Google and uh, look, just search for Luther Insult Generator, it comes up with these quotes, which are all reference to his works. Um, which one is my favorite one here? Um, yeah. Um, you are as versed in scripture as a cow in a walnut tree or a sow in a half. So there's some good ones out there. Good. Okay, so are we bitter against anybody? Who do we need to forgive? And that was his life. So, da-da-da, sum it up. Five minutes over time, sorry. Um, these are the five points we can learn from Martin Luther. Hopefully it was interesting and encouraging and helpful to learn from Martin. Good.